This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone whose idea of working from home is showing up at the homes of famous people and not leaving until they agree to an interview. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, joining us from Philadelphia is Adam Grant, a professor of psychology and management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. He's the author of several best-selling books, including Originals and Give and Take, and the audiobook Power Moves, Lessons from Davos. He's also the host of a podcast, Work Life with Adam Grant, which recently started a new season, and he's been on the show before, is hugely popular with the people who listen to Rico Decode. Adam, welcome back. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be back. I almost got the sense last time that you liked me. That would be very <laughs> off-brand. No, I don't. No, I'm kidding. I Good. do. I do. I feel Adam. much better yeah. now. No, I, you know, Scott Galloway, who I do pivot with, is very jealous of you because he said you're the dreamy version of him um, <laughs> and you're the nicer version, but, which is 100% true. Let's just be honest. I'm definitely nicer than he is. That, yeah. I think that is true. And so we're doing this remotely. I seldom do remote uh, interviews. We did the last one, I think, in person. Um, you're, but you're in Philadelphia and I'm here in New York and everybody is battening down the hatches, um, as they, whatever that means. Um, I want to get into some of the things you're dealing with around work in general uh, on your podcast in this season. But let's talk about the situation right now. This now, everybody's working from home. Everything's sort of in a big flux about what to do and how to run businesses right now. So let's talk about that a little bit. So give me a, a look of the landscape right now as people are now working from home, closing down offices, people, what happens to the workplace and work in general in that situation? I think I would be a fool to say I have any clue what's going to happen. But I can, uh, I can certainly tell you what I've seen in the data uh, on what happens when people go to work from home. Uh, so my, my favorite experiment is uh, Nick Bloom at Stanford, who uh, did this great, great experiment where people in call centers got to work from home instead of in an office. Right. And their productivity went up by over 13%. Hmm. And they were half as likely to quit over the next six months. And it wasn't clear exactly why. I think one of the, the possible explanations is people were just grateful that their employer trusted them to work from home. Right. Uh, which we obviously don't have really <laughs> playing out now. Right. But I think another factor is people had the autonomy to work when and where and how was most effective for them. And I think we're going to see some of that happening, that people get to customize their jobs in ways now that are a little more difficult when they feel like their boss might be spying on them around the corner. Right. 
Right. And so when you're thinking about the work from home trend, it's been one that's been very slow going. I mean, everyone talks about this idea that we have technologies in place where we can work from anywhere. And that's a whole nother topic about burning out and things like that. But people haven't, the, the, the workplace has persisted. The physical workplace has persisted despite all these abilities to do this anyway and the, and the technologies that have come into force in the past several years. It has. I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's a sense of place and structure and belonging and community. And, you know, obviously that, that's being torn out from under us uh, by the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I think that one thing we can do that will maintain that sense of connection is there's this uh, this work that I love on what's called burstiness, mm-hmm. uh, which burstiness. is an actual term, burstiness. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's when you're collaborating with someone and the ideas are flowing so much that you feel like it, it's just bursting with energy. Uh-huh. And this has been studied in virtual teams uh, with, with software programmers where it turns out if they're online at the same time, even if they're not co-located, uh, they're more productive and they're more creative. Right. And I thought that was because they were able to build on each other and coordinate more effectively and communicate more clearly. But no, it turns out that the major mechanism behind that is when you're online at the same time with someone else, uh, you you get more engaged because you feel like there's someone waiting for you and paying attention to your work and mm-hmm. responding to it. Oh. And so that that seems to be a case if you look at that data for you know for saying, hey, why don't why don't we actually sit down and even if we can't be in the same room, at least be online for a few of the same hours a day. Uh, if, you know, time zones allow. And, and it's as effective as being in person, because you have that idea is when you're sitting around with someone physically and, you th- you know, you throw ideas back and forth. Is one better than the other? I don't think we can fully substitute for face-to-face, uh, but I think we can make up part of the gap. I think especially if you already have trust and, you know, a real sense of psychological safety with your team, then, you know, you, you don't need the face-to-face connection as much. Uh, if you're working with people you've never met before, it's going to be harder. Right. Most people I talk to who have done, you know, there's been a, a plethora of stories now what it's like to work, mostly from journalists uh, who are like, I'm in my pajamas, that kind of thing. But again, the idea of the the modern workplace, and, and this is this is sort of a tester of that, like how much we need it or don't need it. Um, and it doesn't mean we don't need it just because we can't be in the office, for example. Um, it's just we can't be in the office because of, you know, spread of the virus, obviously. But when you think about the trends going forward in work life, is this one that's going to be persistent, this idea of working from anywhere? I hope so. I mean, I work in my pajamas almost every day. All right, so good to know. I'm, okay, good to I'm know. I'm already on board. Okay. Uh, but Why I think, is it better then? What, but go ahead, talk about the, the, the trend well, and then why it's a good thing. I think the trend is, is going to continue for a few reasons. One, you know, technology has made this a lot easier. And I think yeah, the number of people who are, are going to realize that, that Zoom is actually pretty user-friendly is, is probably going to go up This is a video conferencing months. tool. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, I'm sure you know it well. Mm-hmm. Um, Very well. So I think people are just going to get some experience with the, you know, with the alternatives to face-to-face. Uh, and that's going to make them more comfortable doing the work from anywhere thing. I think also people are going to really appreciate not having to commute. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the evidence that (laughs) commutes are one of the biggest drags on on job satisfaction. Right. And so the idea that you don't have to spend two hours, you know, on a bus or a train or, you know, fighting traffic is uh, is probably going to appeal to a lot of people. And, you know, I don't think that's going to happen right away when people return to work. I think a lot of people are going to be thrilled to get out of the house. Right. But I think then people are going to say, you know what, wait a minute, there were actually some things I really liked about being able to work from anywhere, and I want to find a balance that's, you know, more of a mix of the two than I had before. 
there was a meta-analysis published. This was about a decade ago, so people were, you know, were much less familiar with uh, with flex work than they are now. But mm-hmm. even then, the data suggested that uh, there's no cost to uh, satisfaction or to performance as long as people are in the office about two days a week. Two days a week. And so, yeah, it seemed like, you know, getting to 40 or maybe 50% of your week face-to-face is enough to build trust and facilitate communication. And once you've done that, having a couple days a week from home seems to be just fine. All right. So these workers now who are doing this are workers like you and I. We're knowledge workers. And we have the ability to just, you know, text from our phone. We didn't do this right now from other places. I happen to be in a studio. But a lot of people can do this kind of thing from home. What about, there's also been a shift in the economy towards these gig workers who move from thing to thing or quite an analog um, very unprotected in terms of health care and other benefits. What happens in that scenario in terms of figuring out what to do with those workers or how to reward them in ways that keep it going in, in a way that's not devastating when things like this happen, the coronavirus? Honestly, I think it's going to be hard. I'm, you know, I'm obviously really worried about the, the manufacturing economy, the service economy, and the gig economy, mm-hmm. uh, which are way more hard. Well, they're, they're way harder to put online um, right. than the kind of knowledge work we do. Right. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I think, you know, there's, there's an old saying that it's, it's hard to predict the future because historians can't even predict the past. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel a little bit like that right now. I think, yeah, I think we're going to see some people making adjustments and trying to figure out, okay, is this a time to reskill? Uh, or new skill. And maybe that's going to you know, contribute to the growth of the knowledge economy. I don't have a prediction beyond that. Uh, let me turn this back on you. You're the tech reporter. Yeah. Where do you see this going? I think it's a disaster. I think it's. I think you have knowledge workers who can take advantage of this, that coronavirus doesn't take, the, except for the, the impact on businesses themselves and, you know, selling advertising or selling events or whatever, um, where they make their money. I think that's the impact here, and that will recover itself. But in general, people in the, in the knowledge economy can do very well with, you know, I wrote a whole column about this, that with Zoom and before this particular crisis, the last one we had, we didn't have any of these tools, social media or or video conferencing or even apps. You know, we didn't have apps. And so it's a very different thing to be able, because people move so quickly in and out of their work and their their non-work, I guess, their work. They can move anywhere they want. So phys- physicality isn't the most important part of it. At the same time, we're growing these you know, teams of servants, that's really what they are, that are, whether they're picking us up in a car or delivering food or whatever, and they have almost no benefits. So the idea of what a job is has to change dramatically because you're not an employee. Nobody is an employee anymore. That's my feeling. And so, therefore, what are you and how do, how do things, how does everyone get protected in that environment? And it may be no different than 100 years ago when there were milkmen and, and whatever, stuff like that. But it certainly yeah. is... They're certainly availing themselves to technology using apps and getting their jobs that way, but it's cer- they're certainly unprotected the way other people were 100 years ago, and you could imagine we could do a lot better. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that in, in a couple of ways, Kara. One is, you know, I've been wondering, does everyone become a podcaster or a mm-hmm. YouTuber for the mm-hmm. next few months? Let's hope not. Another possibility, though, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think the world needs that. But I think another possibility is that you know, we start to see organizational identification melt away. Mm-hmm. So I've already started to feel as, as the gig economy has grown that you don't really need to work for a company anymore. Yeah, that's how I feel. Um, and I wonder, I mean, I, I wonder if we're going to go back to almost an era of guilds mm-hmm. where people belong to an occupation or a profession and their skills are available on demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like this is a chance maybe to test that out in the next few months. In terms of what, what we're doing rather than a company, rather than yeah, I mean, being I, affiliated. I've, 
I think you and I are probably similar in that we we identify with what we do, not right. where we belong. Right, right. But that's, you know, that's something that people who are overeducated and over-indexed, you know, that, that have the advantages. But I'm thinking about other people that are, you know, just like an Uber driver right now. What is that? First of all, it's an analog job. Second of all, potential for problem in the coronavirus outbreak, big decline in usage. You know, it's hard to know how to manage that when there's demand and supply shifting at all times and nobody protected in by any company necessarily. Yeah, I wonder, you know, does that create a spike in the other Zoom, the robot pizza making and delivery? Right, exactly. Um, do, you know, do, do people invest in drones and then say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come up with my own local delivery system. You know, I wonder what kinds of gig economy jobs are going to exist that didn't before. Right, absolutely. So let, before we finish this section, what, what do you, if you are doing that right now, and then I want to talk about some of the other topics you're talking about, is what do you do right now if you're in this situation where everyone's going to be on lockdown and it's for the foreseeable month or more, possibly, but the next couple of weeks, things being canceled, you're not traveling, you're not going anywhere. What are some of the tips you would have for people in those environments? What's important to keep in mind? Well, I think the the first thing you want to think about is this is a chance to run experiments. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's a chance nobody wanted, but most of us are are kind of stuck in some kind of routine in the way we work. And I, I'm thinking about that um, that work that economists did in uh, I think it was in London, where uh, when when the the trains went on strike, uh, people had to take a different route to work. And something like a quarter or a third of them ended up saying, oh, I actually just found a better way that I never, I never would have thought to explore. And I think there's a job equivalent of that, right? I think it's a, it's a chance to, to test out a different morning routine, to think about whether you're, you know, you're running in place or doing push-ups, uh, you know, a different, a different kind of workout routine, a different timing of that. I'd love to see you know, that open up new possibilities for how people organize their, their day-to-day work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing is we're really going to need uh, what are called, high, I guess they're called high-quality connections, typically. Right. right. Where, you know, it's it's easy when you see somebody every day to feel seen and heard and valued by them. Uh, that's going to be tougher from a distance. Yeah. And so, social you know, I'm, distancing. I'm, <laughs> are you a social exactly. distancer, Adam? I am. I'm a surprise. I mean, I think I'm habitually one, actually. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're more doing it by force, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think just just having some routines around connecting with the people who matter to you that are not in your place of hibernation, that's probably going to be more and more important, uh, whether that's FaceTime or a daily email or, you know, even a, a time when everybody's on, on GroupMe or, or group text. Um, and then I think the, the last thing that jumps to mind right away is I think one of the, the, the real, I mean, this goes back to the point about reskilling a little bit, but one of the real things that people can do in these, you know, in these months where there's going to be more boredom and more downtime probably than there was before is to say, okay, what skills do I want to learn or master that I've never had the time to pursue before? Um, and, you know, I think for some people that'll be learning to code. Uh, for others, it might be working on their public speaking <laughs> with a captive audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's a chance for everybody to, to ask, okay, what, what personal development objectives can I work on because I have nothing else to do? How how big an issue is boredom in terms of work and, and when you're not, you know, when we're not twitchily engaged as we often are in, in daily life? So I, there's a lot of research on boredom. I think it, it basically 
breaks down into two categories. One is having too much downtime or slack time, mm-hmm. uh, where you know people now have lots of extra ways to fill that that time that they didn't used to, uh, thanks to all the technology that you cover. Um, the other is, I think, a more pervasive and problematic form of boredom, which is uh, I'm bored because the work I'm doing is not intrinsically interesting. Uh, it's not in any way socially meaningful. It's repetitive and monotonous, and I feel like I'm muddling through the day. And I think um, I think we're going to face more of both of those kinds of boredom than we did before in the in the crisis. And so uh, that's part of the reason that I, I think just adding some variety in your <laughs> into, into your routine is going to be so important. Right, like w- whether it be anything at all, what you're doing. Anything. How, I mean, <laughs> how long can people last in this kind of situation, not going back to normalcy from a work point of view? What happens when they come back if it lasts too long, or what do the problems face when it ends? I don't think we have a good view into that. The you know the the best evidence I can think of is there's some work on um, astronauts, and um, also I think polar explorers and mm-hmm. people who essentially work in capsule environments. Uh, and but I, I like the astronaut work because it's about quote the effect of outer space on inner space, mm-hmm. which is always always fun to think yeah. about. But I think in you know in the studies there are huge individual differences. Uh, some people are perfectly content to sit in a small com- confined space for six months, and you know it doesn't really phase them. Other people start to get antsy after you know after ten minutes. And so I, I think it's much more a question of, you know, what, what's your attention span? Uh, how much do you, you know, you need to get up and move around? It might even be a question for some people, do I need to, you know, just each day work in a different spot in my apartment? Mm-hmm. Uh, just so I feel like I have a little bit of variety, variety and novelty kind of mixed into my day. All right. We're here with Adam Grant from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, the host of the podcast Work Life with Adam Grant. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Adam Grant from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He also has a podcast called Work Life with Adam Grant, which has started a new season. So, Adam, what are some of the big, you know, you, you've covered all kinds of work issues, but let's talk about sort of the big issues you're, you're delving with um, that people have to think about related to work. Sure. So, I've been... I've been thinking a lot about the things that people struggle with it, <laughs> the most at work. And so, you know, I, I guess I find myself asking the question a lot, why does work suck? And how do we make it suck a little bit less? Why does work suck? I don't think oh, work sucks, I mean, but how, go ahead. Let me count the ways. All right, tell me that. <laughs> so, I mean, the, in, in this season, we've, uh, I think we've been looking at burnout, procrastination, loneliness, uh, career declines, uh, and we can make a longer list, but where do you want to start? Oh, burnout. Burnout. Let's start with burnout. Why not? 
Yeah, I think I think that's a reasonable place to begin. So, I mean, the first thing is, I think there's a lot of confusion about what burnout is. Mm-hmm. I think the heart of burnout is emotional exhaustion, that sense that you're so depleted and drained by your work that you literally have nothing left to give. Mm-hmm. And when we look at what causes burnout, it turns out there are probably three major factors uh, that that get a lot of attention. One is uh, is job demands, mm-hmm. feeling like you know you're overwhelmed or stressed by what you have to do. Uh, the second is a lack of control. Uh, it's amazing what we can put up with if we have choices about you know when, where, how, with whom we do it. Mm-hmm. And then the last is is social support, feeling like other people have our back uh, as opposed to the people around us are trying to undermine us. Right. And so for me, that's that's the framework that I like to start with when when I go in to try to redesign jobs and change cultures to fight burnout to say, okay, can we reduce job demands? Can we give you more control, or can we offer you support to to cope a little bit better? And do people think about that, or they just they just sort of go right into burnout and stay there? Because that's how I look at it. Like you don't, you know, you, everyone talks about it, but there's no solution to it. So talk about the solution. Yeah. So the first one is there's just too much of it. So do less. Yeah, or or make the, I mean, you could you could do less or you could try to make those demands more manageable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes, you know, do- job demands get overwhelming because people don't have the resources that they need to, to cope with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the ways we, <laughs> we reduce job demands is to say, okay, maybe you have too many tasks on your plate. But another is to say, you know, can we, can we give you a set of skills that mm-hmm. allows you to do your work more efficiently? Right. Um, you know, I, I imagine being a, being a, trans, uh, a transcriptionist uh, was a lot more difficult, you know, 20 years ago than it is today. Right. As, a, as an example of that. And so I think, you know, I've, um, I've spent a lot of time uh, in healthcare systems uh, mm-hmm. looking at job demands because nurses in particular and doctors just are facing loads that are often unbearable and it's going to get a lot worse in the next couple months. Absolutely. So, you know, the question is, what do we do there? And it turns out there's some demands in that job that you don't need. Uh, you know, keeping up electronic health records, there is no reason that that needs to be done by doctors and nurses. Every single doctor I know complains about Epic. It's, I mean, I, I don't know who designed the software <laughs> that exists yeah, in hospitals. it's a software system that doctors use, and they all hate it's, it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the first complaint that I hear typically. And so the question is, you know, can you outsource that some of that work to people who, you know, who have more time on their plates? And by the way, that, that may become a job that, uh, that people who are not currently trained in that area start doing in the next few months because mm-hmm. uh, we're going to need electronic records. Right. Uh, but that would be an example of, you know, of a way to reduce job demands, uh, which, which is a great place to start for me. Mm-hmm. And then the second? So then when it comes to job control, I think that's, you know, that's mostly about recognizing that we don't have to micromanage every person in every situation. Mm-hmm. And I think when you, when you study autonomy, it breaks down around saying, look, you may not get to choose the goal in your job. You may not get to set, you know, your ultimate mission or, or objectives, uh, but you should have some choices that you get to make about how you, you know, how you plan your day. We know, for example, that if you're a morning person, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually much more effective to do your analytical work early in the day. Uh, if you're a night owl, not so much. And so feeling like you have that flexibility can make the job demands a little bit less difficult to deal with. And why has that not changed? It's sort of a cookie-cutter approach to every worker being, it's sort of like healthcare, the same thing. Everyone gets treated with the same amount of aspirin and this and that. And so there's been a push towards personalized medicine. Why isn't there personalized workplaces? That's a great question. Um, I think the best answer to it that I've seen is uh, in work by Amy Resneski and Jane Dutton on job crafting. 
So the idea is that, you know, most people are not the architects of their own jobs. Mm -hmm. There's a manager who created a job description somewhere, and then that's kind of a one-size-fits-all job for whoever gets it. And what's cool is that very few people accept that. So most of us are are pretty proactive job crafters. And we say, okay, you know, I'm going to find a different way to do a task, and I'm going to adjust the, you know, the tools that I, I use to get it done. I might, you know, in, in my world, uh, I had job crafted a little bit in my teaching world by saying, all right, I used to be a magician. I'm going to do magic tricks at the end of class. And, uh, you know, hopefully this, the students know that if they're really engaged all semester, then they have something to look forward to as a reward. Mm-hmm. We all do this. Managers are not always receptive to it. So if you go back to the, the, the healthcare world, uh, Amy and Jane did this study where they found that there are a lot of gaps uh, in patient care that... Uh, hospital cleaners notice if if you have a janitor job, uh, you will be the person who might be available when a patient who's bedridden needs a pillow, uh, as an example. Or you might be able to um, you know to get the attention of uh, of somebody who can help with you know with a, a medical problem, uh, and nobody else is you know is responding on the unit. And so in this this one healthcare organization that they studied. It turned out that a lot of the cleaners were were doing this work. They were right. crafting their jobs to say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down with a family member uh, who's just found out that somebody they love has been diagnosed with a terrible illness, and I'm gonna console them." And managers didn't know this was going on when they found out. They started forbidding them from doing it, and saying, "No, no, no, no. you're not trained. You're not qualified to do this stuff." Even though it was essential work for both, you know, in some cases, physical right. care right. and other cases, emotional care, mm-hmm. um, there were cleaners who were prohibited from even going into a patient's room an extra time to clean mm-hmm. uh, when they felt like, you know, the existing schedule wasn't good enough given right. the, the patient's level of susceptibility. Right. And so I think as a manager, of course, you need to make sure that, you know, that safety guidelines are being followed. But that's a shame and it's a missed opportunity, right? I would say, okay. You actually want job crafting to be happening. It's not necessarily a violation of rules. Uh, It's not necessarily something that people are doing to try to sabotage or shirk. They're often doing it to to bring more meaning into their work and try to express their identities, and managers ought to facilitate that more. I like the word job crafting, but I think I just gave you one personalized workplace. Personalized workplace. (laughs) I mean, And then support. Then support. I mean, I think of, of support as, you know, is mostly about the culture. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of, do people have each other's backs? And just to, to carry through the, the hospital example so people can imagine this in one world, Dave Hoffman and Jacquer Lee and I did this study years ago where we looked at who you go to when you need help or advice. So let's say you're a doctor and you make an initial diagnosis, but you're not sure about it. Who do you seek out? What our data showed was you don't go to the best expert on your unit. You go to the person that you like who's not busy. And so people are systematically getting the wrong information. Uh, One of the ways we found that hospitals overcame that was they created a role called nurse preceptor, Mm -hmm. which is basically a nurse on your floor whose job is to help other nurses. And all of a sudden, people would take their requests to that person mm-hmm. who's then able to find the, the most fixer. qualified They're person the to help you out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they know the answer. Sometimes they'll reach out and make sure that you're going to the person who has the right knowledge. And I think that should exist in every team, right? Mm-hmm. I think every team needs someone who cares for the caregivers or, you know, who kind of backs up helping the team on client work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that exists in enough workplaces. Oh, that's a smart idea. I like that. Fix it. You think so? Well, it's always been used in the mob, so I think it always works. <laughs> that's why you like it. Okay, I'm getting a, a window into the psyche of Karis. Yeah, exactly. That's the I think of everything do, in mob. Terms do you have one, that. though? 
Uh, sort of. Different people, yeah, kind of. You know, different. they share jobs, right? Every, some people are yes. better at fixing than others. I'm kind of a good fixer, I, although you know, I always know where to go and stuff like that. But I, I agree with you that organizations need someone who just does it, but they're not even slightly in the budget to do that. I think everyone's job is that no. in some way. And, you know, the other thing, Kara, that I like about this is that kind of work disproportionately gets dumped on women. Right, they right. do. A lot, a lot, a lot of the fixing. I mean, I don't need to tell you. Right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of it is office housework. Right. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of it is kind of unseen, and so you know, it doesn't carry a lot of status, but it's still really important for getting things 100%. done. One hundred percent. Yeah, because you know, women do, do get things done. It's the cleanup crew, really. I think that's the the concept. It's either people of color or women always get that job. Like always get the job after a mess is made. Consistently in the data, and so you know, I look at that and say, what if? What if that's a job? And then, you know, the the person whose job it is, make sure that that work gets evenly and fairly distributed. Right. All right, next topic. Loneliness? Which one do you want to take? It's up to you. It's your podcast. We've got loneliness. What else? Loneliness. uh, We've got procrastination. Procrastination. Negotiation. Let's not leave that behind, procrastination. Procrastination. (laughs) We should talk about that later. Yeah. All right. So, uh, loneliness. Yeah, what do you want to talk about with respect to loneliness? The big trends right now, because I think one of the issues is, you know, I was thinking about this whole people working from home and how we talk about um, this idea of social distancing right now because of this crisis. But one of the things that most people feel is that technology has distanced each other from each other, including in the jobs where people are texting right when they're sitting next to each other. There's not as much office camaraderie uh, where people rely on digital communications almost constantly. And that it creates, and that's that's just at the workplace. In life, it's the same thing with teens, is that they're feeling more depressed, uh, more lonely, more uh, by themselves. And yet they self-isolate because they like being involved with their telephones or or or, what, or their online presence. Yeah. Because there's an addictive nature to it. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that certainly tracks with what I've seen. So I think one of the, the pieces of good news about loneliness is that it doesn't necessarily take that much connection to begin to make a dent in it. Right. Uh, so there's this, uh, this fun study that Hakan Ozilik and Sigal Varse did where they looked at how lonely you feel at work uh, which, you know, in a, in a typical study, as many as a third or half of, of employees might experience. And they ask, okay, how many friends do you need at work in order to not feel lonely? What would you say? I don't know, one. You're exactly right, one. only one. I always say that, you only need one friend. It's so true in the data. And yeah. what I think is interesting about it is in the U.S., we are worse at that than most other parts of the world. So if you go, for example, to Poland or India, people are significantly more likely to have gone on vacation with their closest coworkers. They're more likely to invite their coworkers over for dinner. And I think in, you know, in the US, we live in this, you know, this individualistic society where people feel like they need to check their relationships and their emotions at the office door. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they end up not making these kinds of bonds that would actually stave off loneliness. Well, I think that's also because, you know, it sounds dumb, but the Me Too thing where people feel that they can't bring personal things to work as much as they used to because some of it was so over the line that now people, I've noticed that a lot more. I can't say that. I can't do that. I can't be this. Um, and, you know, of course, on the other side, it's like, oh, everything's become so... You know, it creates creates distance between people, although it's appropriate to have stopped the other behavior. Kara, do you really think, though, that this is that hard? Like, I read I read a study last week saying that about, I think it was 28% of men think it's okay to crack sexual jokes at work. And I'm like, okay. 25% so of men is, think that. 
Yeah, over, over 25. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what? who are these people? Right. But that aside, like, it's pretty clear in that realm that, you know, that Me Too has changed the conversation and made people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Why does that mean, though, that I can't talk about my hobby of playing Ultimate Frisbee? or the book that I'm reading, mm-hmm. or the new language that I'm learning, right? I don't think it's that hard to connect on a personal level without 100%. making it awkward. Uh, do agree. you? Agree. No, I've always found it. You know, I think people do tend to go towards the awkward jokes, though, and are comfortable with them. I don't know why that is. They can't talk about their guitar playing or, you know, their kids or something like that. And people do talk about their kids and things like that. But I think it's created a workplace where nobody knows, and I think it's a false thing because everybody knows. Let's just not talk about someone's body. Let's just not talk about, there's usually like six or seven things that everyone could agree on is probably makes people uncomfortable in some fashion. And everything else is should be pretty straightforward, fine. right? Yeah, it should be. Yes, it should be. I was, I was with some, a bunch of tech people and they were, they were surprisingly young to be saying this, um, but they're like, oh, I just don't know what to say anymore. And I said, or what to do. And I said, just don't grab a woman's boobs. How about that? Let's start with that. <laughs> and then... Like, don't say a rude thing or ask out on a date if you're in a work situation. I, I don't know. That's pretty much, that's, that'll cover a lot of, like, your sins there. Um, and it was interesting that people can't uh, feel that because I do think the personal connection at work is one of the most critical things to enjoying work, for sure. There is a gray area there that I've I've been trying to figure out, though, which is mm-hmm. should we not compliment someone's clothing or their hair? Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on that? Well, that was just recently, right? What was Who was just got uh, fired for that? There was, oh, it was Chris Matthews. Um, I think he went further than the, yeah. the the line he's putting out and his supporters are because he didn't just say, don't you look fantastic? I think he was quite creepy and, you know, he moved into Creepyville rather quickly. But uh, but I think you're right. I think it's a question. What do, what do you do? I, probably people are not doing that. You know, those are the sort of the social niceties because I think ultimately it's been over used and it's been over abused is the problem. You know, the other day someone, in fact, it was weird. Someone said, I was with my son. I was at an appearance on CNBC, and someone who was there coming in, I believe it was a Republican congressman, and my son was outside. And I don't tend to smile a lot on the air. I don't. I just, I just, I don't know why. Something it was something not funny, so I wasn't smiling. And I did my thing, and I came out. And my son was like, "I can't believe that just happened." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Apparently, this guy had said to my son, "Oh, is that your mom? She could smile more." Whoa! I know, right? And so. And my son, I surprisingly, was already sort of woke on that issue, and I, I hadn't ever discussed this with him, which was interesting. Um, and he goes, why should she smile more? She's talking about serious things. Why are you saying that? Because she's a woman. And he, he was like on her and, you know, on this Good guy. Good for him. And it was interesting because I, I don't think he would describe himself as a feminist in any situation. He's very particular about that. But it was interesting that he was aware that that probably wasn't something that should be discussed. And if this guy had said it to me, I'd have, like, slapped him back to last Sunday. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I would have said, why aren't you better looking? I'd smile at you if you're better looking or something. I would have come back. But it was an interesting that. moment because I thought, well, that was offensive. And I, I don't, I'm not too sensitive, but it was like, why do I have to keep hearing that, like, over and over again? I, I mean, I, I've had this thought so many times during the political cycle. Every time somebody tells Elizabeth Warren to smile more. Yeah. Why don't you tell Bernie Sanders to smile more? Yeah, they like He's, his grumpy <laughs> thing. That's true. That's a fair, I mean, women notice that all the time. People of color notice that all the time. Like, those kind of distinctions of one gets pilloried and the other doesn't at all. And I think it's a problem. I mean, what my favorite thing with Elizabeth Warren, and then we'll move on to our next section in a second, is when they call her school marm. 
Like, that's my favorite, when they call their school marm. And I'm like, when have you met a school marm at Little House on the Prairie? Like, no school And what was interesting about it, that it was acceptable to do that to her versus someone else, you know. So, uh, which so is frustrating to watch this happen. It I is. I keep wondering what century we're living in. We're living in the dark ages, in case you're interested. Anyway, we're here with Adam Grant from the Wharton School uh, at the University of Pennsylvania and the host of the podcast Work Life with Adam Grant. When we get back, we're going to talk about negotiation and procrastination because it's the last thing we're going to get to. And also what the future of the workplace looks like. I want him to make some predictions on what it looks like in a couple of years. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Adam Grant from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a very famous work what what are you what are you a work professor professor of work organizational psychologist psychologist whatever that okay means. right so and he does work life with Adam Grant which is a great podcast on the topic so uh, let's go to uh, negotiation what is happening in that area again impacted I'm guessing by digital things because people aren't doing as much face to face encounters as before yeah there's a there's a classic experiment where people had to negotiate with the stranger mm-hmm. and the question is do they go right in on you know just on the deal or do they get asked to schmooze for a few minutes first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not surprisingly, the, the schmoozers are significantly more likely to make a deal. Huh. And, you know, a lot of times the information that gets shared is irrelevant, but it builds trust. And one of the things I think is so interesting about trust building is people are so reluctant in a negotiation to show their cards. Right. Right. They think they might get taken advantage of. Sure. But there's all kinds of information that you can share that's completely irrelevant to somebody being able to take advantage of you. Right. Now, people don't do that because they because they think they're going to be taken advantage of, right? Is that correct? So if they tell them, hey, I was fishing this weekend, that makes them what? A weak fisherman or what? I mean, right. I'm vulnerable in some right. way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I think we forget that the best way to earn trust is to show trust, 
right? If, if I disclose something about me that's personal and maybe a little bit vulnerable, but still, you know, is not that tied to the negotiation, uh, you're going to feel like I trust you. Are people as good at face-to-face encounters as before? Because again, I, I have full relationships with people on Twitter or texting. I have like full tw- text relationships with people where I negotiate things and I deal with things. That It's only in those mediums. Well, one of, one of the things I'd worry about in that context is you're losing a lot of probably social and emotional cues, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's another classic experiment where at the, the end of a negotiation, uh, one person in the deal just says, hey, you know what? I'll throw in my pet frog. And it actually increases the odds that they come to an agreement. Mm-hmm. There's something about either the humor that's injected into that interaction right. uh, or, you know, the just the absurdity of it that, that gets you out of your, you know, kind of, okay, Let's this is a yes-no decision yeah. and into, all right, how do I work with this person? Mm-hmm. And I think that information is less likely to be exchanged mm. when you're just texting or Not when you're Not a frog DMing. emoji? Not a... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm happy to throw in my pet frog on Twitter, too. Yeah, yeah. But but people are just less, they're less likely to do that. And so I think that's a risk. But people are more likely to debate these days because they're doing it everywhere, right? People are doing it, especially on Twitter. You see this whole debate environment, instant reaction and stuff like that. Does that change how people interact personally? <sighs> Probably. I mean, I think that's the, a good study. It, you should do that one, Adam. I bet it's true. I mean, that's, it's waiting to be done. Right. Uh, Twitch. I think, you know, <laughs> yeah. The, the data that I can think of that, you know, that compare us online and offline suggests, though, that we're just more likely to become belligerent online. And, you know, I think Twitter is a giant cesspool of that mm-hmm. uh, for many people. So, yeah, I think there's there's still, I always think of that old New Yorker cartoon on the Internet, No One Knows You're a Dog. Mm-hmm. And I think there's still something about not seeing the person face-to-face, not really knowing that they're a living, breathing human being that that allows us uh, to, you know, to be unfiltered in a way that's probably not that helpful or entirely healthy. Is that and the so same think, on video when you're on Zoom or things like that? Because more people are doing that. They're doing negotiations. It seems to be a lot better. So there's um, there's a, a term called media richness, mm-hmm. which is basically about the both the number and the kind of the, the frequency of cues that get sent back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like a, a video call is is the next best thing. But there's a little bit of a twist on this that I think you'll find interesting. So there's a psychologist at Yale, Michael Krauss, mm-hmm. who uh, who was curious about whether the the cues that we pick up face to face are really what we think they are. Oh. And so he did this this series of experiments, or five experiments, where he had people essentially try to judge what someone else is feeling by listening to their voice, looking at their face and body language, both or neither. Uh-huh. Okay. And most people bet on both being the best, mm-hmm. and then the facial cues and body language being much more revealing than the vocal cues. Vocal, I bet. And you are right. It turns out that if you want to judge someone's emotions, if you close your eyes and just listen to their voice, you are more accurate than if you get the voice and the face and the body language or if you just get the face and the body language. So you anticipated this. Well, because I just was recently watching Love is Blind, my friend. That's why. Oh, you you had an advantage. That's Ah, so unfair. You have not watched it. This is such an organizational management thing to do. You need to watch that, Adam. That's I've heard like, great things about it. Yeah, well, it's weird. Let's just be honest. It's weird. And, and of course, they, they make it as creepy as possible in making it, <laughs> you know, like romance. But it is interesting, the first parts where they're, I mean, the pods are weird and everything else, the way people go in, they do this whole dramatic, you know, arc to it. But there is a of how people talk to each other. It's really, it is an interesting, it is a very interesting to watch how people learn much more about each other through just their voices. 
So the, qu- the question that raises for me is, is why? Uh, it seems like in some cases, the, the vocal cues are a little bit ironically less noisy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are like 19 ways you can interpret someone smiling, right? It's, it's yeah. like, okay, are they smiling because they like me or right. are they feeling duping delight where mm-hmm. they're about to take advantage of me? Who knows? Uh, whereas in the voice, it's a little more clear. You know, is it just that the, the facial and body cues are, are more distracting? What, what do you think it, it boils down to? Well, sometimes body cues are very good, too. At the same time, if you use them, I mean, I do think in conjunction it's interesting. I used to, um, when I used, when I interview people in person, uh, I sometimes, it sounds like crazy, but people what people do with their hands is really interesting to me, like how they move their hands. I was noticing last night Trump's hands kept pop, finger kept popping up. You know, he was super nervous, and obviously he's a twitchy kind of fella. And so he was, he was when he was upset, he, his hand would pop up every time. He'd say something he didn't want to say. or It was, it was just interesting to watch. And um, I would do, sometimes when I interview talking about trying to do some niceties before you do an interview, I used to ask, how's your wife? You know what I mean? Something like that. And about half the men started twirling their fi- the, the ring on their finger like crazy, like as if it was going to really? blow off. Like, you know, as if it was hot and they couldn't do anything wow. with it. And I was always like, oh, okay. All right. I could tell who was having marital problems. I know it sounds crazy, but it was really interesting how they wanted to get that off their finger because they, could, they couldn't stop trying to remove it enough. And it was really interesting. It was fascinating to me. I have a. Qu- I actually have a question for you on that, which uh, which I think is endlessly interesting. Mm-hmm. So, so just as a little preamble, this um, this kind of tracks with one of the big changes in in the work on lie detection, mm-hmm. where for a long time, you know, experts thought, well, you want to look at where their eyes go, and you want to see, you know, somebody tapping their foot, right? And you know, just just like we were talking about, it turns out that if you want to detect lies, uh, the visual cues are much less reliable than. Uh, just getting people talking longer yeah. and looking for inconsistencies in their stories. Yeah, 100%. And so you you obviously have spent your entire professional life mastering how to disarm people. You also, though, have the license to do it a little bit as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet also you have the challenge of people being on guard a little bit. Right. So I'm curious, what have you learned about how to find out what people are really thinking and feeling? Negging them. Anger. <laughs> really? uh, you know, here's the thing. Here, what, what I, uh, I always say this. When I start off my profession, I thought, what are they lying to me about? And then I realized it's what they're lying to themselves. What little story do they have to tell themselves to get up every morning, right? Like, what's their little fake story they need to, I am this, I am that. And so, uh, and Trump is interesting because he says it out loud, right? Everything is out loud. His criming is out yeah. loud. His, every, his, all his insecurities are out loud. But a lot of people tend to hide those and, and get very good at hiding those. Um, and so what motivates people to say something. Sometimes they want to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, sometimes they want to be, um, they want it to be right. I was right. You know, long ago before, I remember Steve Case was like this. He, I was right at the beginning about this internet thing, and he was, but he wanted he people totally to He totally was. He was that. ahead of his time. Right, but he wanted people to know that. And so the, what, what is the thing that gets, some people just like to be liked, and they're jolly, and this and that. And anger tends to work best in getting a good answer out of people, I have to say. And so what I tend to do before I interview people is neg them slightly. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes that works super well. It works really well with men, I'll tell you that, because it's an aggressive move. Um, and so sometimes I'll say, oh, did you gain some weight? Or something just before the interview. Or, Whoa, which really, men are vicious. the most vain. Women are not even That is so cruel, though. It, it's cruel, but it works. Or, wow. ooh, you, that didn't work out for you. Like, I tend, I, like, pick at something small, but it's small. Or, like, what, what, where'd you, how'd you pick those shoes? Like, something like that. Negging works. Like, just works. 
It just, okay, I don't know. So what. I'm anger. Gonna, I'm anger gonna you, gets I'm going to put answer. you on the spot here. All right, okay. Try me. Try me. I, I can't wanna, do I it. See I got to in person. You're not going to even know what's happening when you're doing it. <laughs> no. Oh, you can't do it with sell, just the voice? So your book, it didn't do as well, right? Something like that. Which one? I don't know. Just I, That's how I would start it. I don't know. You know what Got I mean? It. Like that's I'd start something with, with probably your book or one of your books. I probably would. But I don't know. I don't think I would neg you. I don't think it would work. I don't think your anger is, is your first move. You also, not, you, you tend to tell the I truth. Hope. You tend to, you tend to not be <laughs> hiding so. things. You tend to not. Be I hiding. hope so. But look, I, I also resonated with what you said that there are stories we all like to tell ourselves mm-hmm. uh, about who we are. Right. And I certainly have stories like that. My hope is that I then make those stories true through the way that I live my life. Uh, but I don't always succeed. And so, yeah, like if you brought if you brought up the book thing, my first instinct is to say. Yeah, none of my books have sold as well as I wanted them to. Yeah, that's true. So you're healthy. You're I, a healthy person. That, that's I mean, if, if I was if I was going to spend a year or more of my life writing something, I think it's important enough that everyone should know about it. Yes, that's true. Um, I think and, I didn't read and, it. Would probably be me. <laughs> oh, I didn't read that. Did you write about that? I didn't read it. Like that's like, yeah, what? that's so funny. What? I love that. What? Um, also, what tends to work is just tiny. Just it's just a little tiny thing. It's a tiny tiny thing. Also, sharing a piece of gossip. I think I agree. Like something like that tends to work with people. Like that you're in the know, and so they don't think they can lie to you. Like you know something. What's interesting about that is you don't then, it seems like you don't do the self-disclosure version of this and talk about something that is a little bit vulnerable for you. No. Is that because of your job? Uh, No, I do sometimes. You know, I'll talk, I just had a baby. I talk about that. People always want to see a picture. I'll show a picture. Yeah, I do that. I do that all the time. But I, because I like that. So it doesn't, it's not, it's not a technique. Or anything Got else. It. It's just that. That's, anyway, that's let's, since we're you. almost done, we got to talk about procrastination because it comes at the end, obviously. Ha ha. Talk about that. And let's finish up on that. Yeah. Okay. So my big aha on procrastination comes from uh, Tim Pitchell and Fuchsia Sirwa, these psychologists who found that most procrastinators think they're lazy. Yeah. Uh, I had a fascinating conversation with Margaret Atwood, who told me that oh, she is her. lazy, and that's why she's been procrastinating for her whole writing career. Uh-huh. Really? She's done pretty well for someone who procrastinates. Well, you know, that I pushed back on that, too, and she said, if you do the math, I have fewer books than I have years that I've been alive. Oh. So I, I haven't done that much, mm-hmm. which, was, which was interesting. But what I ultimately learned was that she's wrong. Sorry, Margaret. Mm-hmm. But... No one procrastinates solely because they're lazy. Uh, in fact, a lot of us are pretty busy and active when we're procrastinating, mm-hmm. cleaning our houses. Right, something uh, else. Or exercising or doing something else, right? And so it's not work that we're avoiding. We're avoiding the negative emotions that a task might stir up. Oh, I see. And so I've noticed, I, you know, I, I thought I was not a procrastinator. I've noticed there are certain kinds of tasks that I, I, I the, the, the term for them is they're procrastinogenic. Procrastinogenic? Uh, so, you and the word. word. Okay, what does that mean? I'll let you have that word. I mean, this, this is Fuchsia's term for a task that naturally brings out your inner procrastinator. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's really boring, repetitive tasks. I cannot stand reading a contract. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. also not a big fan of proofreading an article for the 90th time. Right. And I put those tasks off, even though I'm somebody who usually likes to get things done early. And so that analysis was helpful for me because I said, okay, I don't have to beat myself up when, you know, those tasks sit in my inbox for weeks. Um, I know there's a certain emotion that those tasks bring up. And now that I understand it, I can try to control it. I see. But how do you control it? Because it's still still boring or it's still this or something still you don't like. So I try to make those tasks more fun. One of the things I do is uh, I, I actually um, I, I try to get somebody who's involved in the contract who I enjoy interacting with and don't get to spend enough time with and say, you know what, let's, uh, let's get on the phone and read this together and we mm-hmm. can chat while we're doing it. 
you know, I do something similar when I'm proofreading. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll sit down with somebody who, uh, who would be reading my writing anyway because they email me every time I publish an article. <laughs> and I send it to them in, in advance. And I say, hey, you know, I'm going to proofread this. Do you want to go through it together? Oh, or I'll uh, read that it really, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can do it. But that, um, it makes the task less miserable. Yeah. But uh, some people, things should be procrastinated, right? I mean, and for your mental health and for your work. It's some, like, sometimes I procrastinate and then it doesn't matter. Like, I often hope it'll go away. And uh, sometimes it does, which is interesting. I also like yeah. to clean before I or write, for example. I, I will fair. clean for hours before I write an article. So I don't know if that's procrastination, though. That might just be delay, right? So procrastination is, oh, is intentionally delaying a task where you expect a cost. What do you mean? You expect to do it? You expect there to be some downside of procrastinating. So, you know, you think by putting it off, you're going to fall behind or, the you know, you're going to have to rush and the quality will suffer or Mm -hmm. it's just going to cause you a lot of anxiety or guilt. And so to qualify as procrastination, there there has to be some cost that you're anticipating. Oh, I see. Oh, interesting that you're not. Well, sleep, for example. I tend to write at night. Yeah. And so I will do. Okay, so that's a problem. Everything else, including you know, I, for example, when I get on a Twitter series of rants, for example, that helps me get to where I'm going. <laughs> like, I, it helps me get going. That it, it calms me during a period of, you know, of, of before I have to do something productive. That's so interesting. So if that's the case, do you just then not schedule stuff early in the morning and then it doesn't cost you sleep? Yes, exactly. That's what I do now. Although now here yeah, I, I, know, I was up early this morning. But yeah, I tend to do that. And I think it's interesting because there's a there's a roll-up time, but I think a lot of people do. And of course, again, getting back to technology, there's so much to fill your time up with. You know, there's so much things, either it's a game or a cross. I could I watch I, I would be interesting to watch my use of my phone before I write, for example. Um, because I get to the crossword puzzle and I do some Twitter and then I look at mail and then I read a news thing and that you know what I mean? Like and I, I, I can I move so quickly. Sounds like you're warming up. Yeah, I move so quickly between all of them. And they're all momentary get-your-mind-off-of-stuff. You know what I mean? Even the, reading the news is, is relaxing to me. It's such an interesting reframe for me just to say, you know what, all those things that I thought were procrastination, maybe maybe that's just my warm-up. Yeah, exactly. That's probably it. That's probably the case. Or working out, like something like that. Procrast- I mean, out of work, um, you sort of work your way up to working out in a lot of ways instead of just doing it. I think a lot of people do that. And I think it's totally natural, right, to procrastinate. Yeah, unless unless you're my friend who goes to bed in his gym clothes. So <laughs> he feels like when he wakes up, you know what? All right, I might as well work out. I'm already dressed. Oh, really? What? Yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yes. Okay, whatever. All right, so Adam, last thing uh, before we go. Give me what you think the biggest change in the workplace is going to be in the next year and then five years and ten years. Oh, wow. This is this is the worst thing to do to a social I know, scientist. I know that. I'm like, well, it depends on all these things. In the next year, the biggest change? Yeah. I, I don't know if this is going to be the biggest. Can I call it the most yeah, so interesting? Yes, you say what has to change. Why don't I say what, you, what do you think has to change in each of those Okay. Yeah, I think, I think one thing that has to change, uh, and I think it will change, is people are going to start, they're, they're going to stop having starts and ends of the workday. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to make our own schedules as individuals or in teams. And I think that's going to be a huge gain for both happiness and productivity. I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great idea for school, too, for kids. But go ahead. Yes, please. Yes, please. I don't understand summer. I just don't. I don't, <laughs> well, under- my, I don't understand my, my summer My beef is off. more... I summer, I, I actually like summer as, you know, a part-time teacher. <laughs> but I 365 I, um, days a year of school and lots more vacations in between. But go ahead. No, that would be cool. I, my bigger problem with school, actually, is that the, the school schedules should be synced with the work schedule. Yeah. So, you know, if we work 9 to 5, kids should go to school 9 to 5. Agreed. 
And by the way, teenagers uh, would actually learn better the data yep. suggests if they didn't yep. have to wake up so early. You exactly. know that. You have yep. kids. 100%. All right, next, five years. What has to change in five years? I'm, I mean, if, if I were going to pick one thing in five years, I think this, this goes back to my early work on give and take. Mm-hmm. I think we have to stop believing that being an asshole makes you a more effective boss. Yes. Uh, yes. And we have to especially stop promoting the most toxic narcissistic takers to the top just because they seem like they're competent uh, or they're confident. Mm-hmm. All right. Ten years. Please. Please. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm begging you. Get rid of the assholes. Uh, and then ten years, um, I'm not sure it's different than five years because right. I think we're, we're still going to be trying to get rid of all the jerks. I want robots but, to do everything. <laughs> Oh, I, I hate that idea. That's uh, a horrible idea. No, it's not. I think in 10 years, we're going to need to figure out how to, how to do really good human-machine collaboration. Oh, and good. I'll give you an example of this that's, right. uh, that's very relevant to your job. So recently, I read a, uh, an AI-generated uh, kind of article yep. on a basketball game. Yep. It was, yeah. And then there's a human version, too, and I could not tell which was which. Of course you couldn't. And that scared the hell out of me. But it also made me realize, you know what? There are a lot of parts of my writing job that could be automated. That's right. You know, using the language that I've used in the last 90 things I wrote. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any clue how to use that as an input to the creative part of my writing. And so I would love for us to learn how to do that kind of thing. What do you think about that? I love it. I love it. I used to write um, uh, earnings for the Wall Street Journal when I st- when I was there I was a young reporter and I even then I was like why isn't a computer doing this this is just you know this went up this went up. it was a waste those minutes in my life I wish I could get back because it was a waste of my time it could have been automated and I do wonder though so I just I just want to complicate that saying you know Google earnings were up 20% like there was nothing creative in it no, I agree with that, but there is some work suggesting that uh, we do some of our most creative thinking when we're doing mindless tasks, <laughs> and that boredom can actually make us more creative, and so to come full circle, part of me wonders if, you know, occasional periods of mindless work and boring tasks uh, might actually help those creative juices flow. Well, I do that when I rearrange the, uh, the cutlery drawer. That's how I do it. So <laughs> you have a cutlery list. drawer? I do. I call it cutlery. Not, I don't think I've ever heard those two, year, two words used back it's to back forks before. Forks and knives and spoons for the regular people, but for me, it's cutlery. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I love that. I rearrange it, and I feel better, and I think of things during it. It's, so that's, the, that's the kind of mindless thing. We do. Oh, and you anyway. will never get those moments back either. <laughs> I, but I will because I came up with something, and I actually enjoy, and I got enjoyment out of it, so therefore it's a plus-plus. Anyway, Adam, as usual, it's a plus-plus having you on this show. Thank you so much for coming on. Adam Grant has an amazing uh, podcast. He's a professor. He's like a lot of things. His podcast is called Work Life with Adam Grant. His books are called Originals, Give and Take, and the audiobook Power Moves, Lessons from Davos. Adam, I have not listened to that one, but I, I don't know if I want lessons from Davos, but I might, <laughs> just because it's you, I might listen to it. Uh-oh. Anyway. Don't let it put you to sleep. I, I'll try not. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Adam, where can people find you online? Oh, I guess I'm at Adam M. Grant on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and Adam Grant on Instagram and uh, adamgrant.net. Exactly, and appearing at the University of Pennsylvania uh, Wharton School. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. <laughs>